Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. That means sit down. <laughs> That's okay. All right, today we are going to be back in Genesis 3 for a bit, but then we're going to be heading out to other area, ooh, other parts of the Bible, um, primarily still in Genesis, but we're going to be talking about, as promised two weeks ago, I missed last week, wasn't predestined to preach that week, so sorry, but I will be preaching about eternal security from Genesis 3 and a couple other passages. All right. Now, as with last, not last week, two weeks ago, I started this then, so if I say last week, that means two weeks ago. Um, my goal isn't to like exhaustively go through every single argument and every single passage that's used in this argument. Um, I think anyone who has looked into this debate in any meaningful way probably has heard most of the real common ones. Um, so I don't think we need to like just yell Romans 8 and Hebrews 6 back and forth at each other for the whole service because I don't feel like that's that productive. So my hope is to look at some passages that maybe haven't been as commonly brought up in this and, and try to understand things in less of like a, not that this is really the case, but I feel like sometimes the Bible is looked at almost as like sort of an encyclopedia where you go to this passage to deal with this issue and this passage to deal with this issue and there's no real overlap. But I feel that scripture is interconnected in a way that means that all passages have impact on each other. All passages, every verse of the Bible impacts one another. They're all intrinsically connected. And to understand any single verse fully in its entirety, we'd have to have the rest of scripture completely mastered. Now raise your hand if you have completely mastered every verse of the Bible. Max? <laughs> I figured I'd see a hand over there. But in my view, that means today and ever really in our lives, we're going to be getting a limited look, a very limited look into any given passage. And disclaimer, like last time, I do not have complete insight into these passages. I don't have anything comprehensively figured out. What I'm hoping to do is bring up some interesting things to me, and then hopefully we can have some conversation. So let's read Genesis 3, the whole chapter, once again, to get started. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever." Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can be here on another Sunday. Thank you for the wonderful weather, and thank you that we can be looking into your word, help it to be a productive time, that we can grow in our understanding, help us to be able to see our own preconceived notions for what they are, help us all to be able to seek you first and put our hope in you and not in traditions or in our own understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to start with the end of this passage and kind of work backwards because as I was working on this, I was struggling with where to kind of draw the lines. It keeps working outward and outward and outward. Every time you try to nail down one part, you have to bring in other passages. So I'm going to start working backwards and then we're just going to cut it off at some point. But the first point for today in my eternal security rant is that Adam and the woman at the end of this chapter, are not just maybe, not just hopefully, not potentially, but they are saved. Adam and the woman are saved. First, or last as the case may be, they're both clothed by God with garments of skin. Now, if you look through scripture, garments are a really, really common symbol, a common theme, and it doesn't take much to determine what they represent. If we do a little overview, Psalm 132.16 talks about the priests of Zion being clothed in salvation. In Zechariah 3, 3 through 5, Joshua the high priest is wearing these filthy garments in a vision. He's wearing filthy garments and God removes them, described as taking away his iniquity, to clothe him with festal robe, which are priestly garments. In Matthew 22, going into the New Testament, we have the parable of the marriage feast. A man is found in the 
at the marriage supper of the Lamb, he doesn't have wedding garments on, and so he's cast out into outer darkness. Revelation 3, 5, white garments on those who are overcomers, those who are written in the book of life. Revelation 7, 14, those saved out of the tribulation wash their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. So all throughout Scripture, really, really common theme, garments signify salvation. And then even in some of the weird, obscure passages like Deuteronomy 22, 11, where God says, don't mix wool and linen. Like, what's that about? Don't sow your field with some of this seed, some of that seed. Seems kind of unimportant and trivial. But what he's doing there is giving them a picture. Your, seed, your garment, the seed in your field, those are both pictures that he uses of salvation. Do not mix two together. You don't mix one kind, one salvation with true salvation. You don't mix seed in your field. You don't mix materials in your garments. And I don't think that's something that applies to us, obviously, as the Gentile church. Otherwise, we'd be in trouble with all our synthetic cotton blends. But it's something that he used to reveal truth. And the list goes on as well. There are a lot more passages that talk about garments. But in Genesis 3, we see God himself making and then clothing Adam and the woman in garments of skin. And where does skin come from? Where does a garment of skin come from? Right. Does God create this ex nihilo? Or does he slay an innocent animal in their place? Garments require a sacrifice. Salvation requires a sacrifice. And I would argue that these garments that God made of skin are the first example of physical death represented in Scripture. The animals that Adam had been given authority over, that he had named. And when you look at the naming of the animals, I think it's tempting to, to take kind of the cartoon version where animal go, or Adam goes around and is like, giraffe, rhinoceros. But he as a representation of Christ, I believe, based on other passages like the naming that takes place in Revelation, I believe he gave each animal an individual, personal, relational name. This wasn't just like, you know, some kind of taxonomy. He was ruling over these animals. And so then his sin directly caused the death of these animals that he loved to provide coverings for himself and the woman. So I would say, if God makes a sacrifice of innocent blood, makes garments for you, and then clothes you in them, takes off the garments you had on, that's a pretty good outcome. You're doing pretty good. Um, I think this shouldn't surprise us either. As far as what we see Adam and the woman doing, over and over, it, very rarely will you see anything other than condemnation for what they do once God confronts them. You'll say, well, they made fig leaves garments. That was legalism. They were trying to cover themselves, earn their salvation. They were putting the blame on each other. When God was asking them the questions, they were saying, well, the woman you gave to me, she gave to me. It's her fault, really. And the woman says, well, it's the serpent. It's on him. But before we make up our mind on that, before we look at these things and just say, oh, yeah, they were blaming each other, trying to fabricate their own salvation, if we look through scripture with the fig leaves, for example, do a survey of figs and fig leaves, fig trees in the Bible, and I think you might have a little bit of a different 
conclusion. In their answers to God, God asks them direct questions. Is anything that they say untrue? Let's look at it again. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Is there anything in that that's untrue? Is there anything in her answer? The serpent deceived me and I ate that's untrue. No. So I think that they are confessions. The fig leaves are confessions. I think their answers are confessions. In fact, I think if we all were to stand before God and answer, the serpent deceived me and I ate, we'd be doing pretty good. We have been deceived by the serpent. We haven't literally eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we have chosen to rebel. And then we look at the curses. Who's cursed? First off, the serpent. Categorically, he gets no questions. He's cursed. The seed of the serpent will crush his head. The woman, is she cursed? No. There's pain in childbearing, and her desire shall be for her husband. That's not a curse on the woman. Is Adam cursed? The ground is cursed. He's going to toil. But that is not a curse on him. I would argue that those things, the pain in childbirth, desire for the husband, curse of the ground, and the toil, those are all things that are for our sake. Those are all things that lead us towards God. Those are good things when we're in a state of sin. They're not good or enjoyable in that, like, you know, all right, we got to work harder now. We got to have thistles and thorns, but those are good things if we're in a state of sin. And then, if we look at what Adam does just after these curses, he calls his wife, he renames the woman, the mother of all living. And that would sometimes kind of gets passed over as, well, yeah, obviously, there's nobody else to be the mother of future generations. But, They have just eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the opposite of the tree of life. So I think if they were not saved, he would have named her more accurately the mother of all the dead. Because Adam has incredible wisdom, incredible understanding. He did choose sin, absolutely, but he also was created by God and was not deceived by Satan, which is pretty important Pretty important information. So I would argue that him calling Eve the mother, or him calling the woman the mother of all living, Eve, is significant. Because when we're confronted with our sin by God, there's one response that results in salvation, and that is not excuses and blaming, it's admission, it's repentance, confession. So to me, I know some would argue, but to me, I think it's pretty clear that Adam and the woman are saved. If there are other opinions, absolutely be interested in discussing them, but at this point in my understanding of the passage, that's kind of my, my, what I'm holding on to. So moving on to the relevant portion to eternal security. Obviously, it was important to establish that they're saved before we talk about eternal security, but that comes down to, once again, the trees. We talked about it last week. Yes? When you yep. say they are saved, can you say from what to what in the same sense we're saved? Correct. I believe they are saved from their sin 
by the sacrifice that God made. Obviously, the animal sacrifices didn't save them, but they're a picture of the salvation promised in Genesis 3.15. Right, I would say that Cain and Abel, knowing what a proper sacrifice is, is also maybe not to me as strong evidence as the garments as Adam renaming the woman, but I would say that's evidence. And then Cain flaunting that and choosing to definitely put his own works on the altar. I think he knew what he was doing. He wouldn't have been, if he, if he was just mistaken, like, oh, I brought my, you know, prize-winning jelly this week instead of, instead of a lamb, and God said, that's not right, he wouldn't have been so murderously angry. But because he knew what he was doing and it was rejected, that resulted in the first murder of a human by a human. Okay, um, so... Yeah, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but we'll go over it again really quickly. Adam and the woman made one extremely important decision. That was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, resulting in separation from God. But during that period of separation from God, before he came and, um, and did this judgment, did this trial, and again, I think, established that they are saved by the pictures that he put into it, they did not make the second choice, which was going and eating from the tree of life. Now, as we talked about, my understanding of the second death is not a location. If you are placed into the lake of fire, that is a result of being in the second death. That isn't the second death itself. The second death is a state, just like eternal life is a state. We have a relationship with God. That is eternal life. Those who do not have a relationship with God and choose to maintain that state, go into the second death eternally. They didn't choose to eat from the tree of life while they were in sin, and that's a critical detail because I believe taking from the tree of life while in sin would have resulted in the second death because they would have then been in physical life separated from God forever. But... God has a plan for this, I believe. They made this choice, but then after they are saved, after they admit their guilt, after God closed them, after Adam renames the woman Eve, the tree of life is made inaccessible to them. Prior to this, they could have gone, they could have skipped the fig leaf business and just streaked over to the tree of life and eaten from that and entered the second death. But instead, they waited for God. And then, once they're saved he cuts off their access. And he doesn't just you know, put some little chain link fence with no trespassing signs on it. He puts the cherubim to guard it, which do a little study. They're exceedingly powerful beings. And he puts the flaming sword, which is, again, another really interesting study, I would say. But at the end of the day, what it means is they have no ability to access the tree of life whatsoever. They cannot, now that they are physically dying, return and take from the tree of life. And God makes it clear that that is an important step that he takes. And on top of this, 
I think if we look at the times in the Bible where significant progress was made in attempts to defeat the curses that God put on the ground and to defeat the curse of physical death, those are times that are without exception exceedingly, exceedingly evil. I don't think we've seen the magnitude of it. I don't think we'll see it again until the days of the Son of Man is described in Luke 17, which kind of leads us into our next passage. But before we go on, I think the big takeaways in terms of eternal security are, one, Adam and Eve are saved for sure, in my opinion. I always like to qualify a little bit so I'm not just blasting out here and you know, slamming my Bible down, although that is fun. And two, after they are saved, their ability to go, take from the tree, and enter the second death is cut off. They're saved, they have eternal life, and they will not now go into the second death. Okay, that's Genesis 3. Now, let's scoot over to Genesis 19 and look at the story of Lot and his family. We're going to read chapter 19, verses 1 through 26. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now, behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this city, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. 
and, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to them, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zor. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the, and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife, from behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Like with Genesis 3, I feel like this is one of those places where almost universally the interpretation is that, you know, Lot, his wife, they were not on the right track, messing up left and right. But I feel like, once again, that doesn't take into account all of the information or much of the information. I think the big issue is, again, that because Scripture is so interconnected, we can't just look at this one chapter and come to any conclusions, really. We need to look elsewhere. We need to look at so much more. And I feel like, especially with these historical accounts, we kind of have this attitude that we can like read this one, maybe go one chapter before and read that, and then we've got it. We don't have to look elsewhere. Maybe the epistles will do a little more digging because they're a little heavier. But the, the, the narrative parts, the historical narratives, they're pretty much straightforward. I don't think that that works. I think when we approach God's word in that manner, we're going to leave out crucial pieces of information that completely change the impact of the meaning. <clears throat> But again, we can't gather all the information, so we're always going to be wrong about something. We're finite minds searching the thoughts of the infinite God, so we need to approach this with humility and do the best that we can. Now, before we look at this story in terms of eternal security, um, I want to just mention something because it's, I feel like, relevant to our lives, not necessarily to the main topic, and that is to briefly touch on the sin of Sodom. I think what the church typically rails against here and the underlying motivation for it is pervasive in the church and toxic. What's the number one thing people will say over and over and over is the sin of Sodom? The sin that God saw fit and necessary to himself directly obliterate these cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities of the plain. Homosexuality. Now, I won't argue that the Bible is clear that pursuing homosexual desires is contrary to his plan for how humanity is meant to reveal him. I think that, though some would argue, it's clearly sinful behavior. And I won't argue that homosexuality is something that was taking place in Sodom. I think it absolutely was. But what I think is a stretch, or I guess more accurately, wrong, plain wrong, is that homosexuality is the primary target of what God is destroying the cities of the plain for. The reason I think homosexuality is so focused on in the church and other things like it is because we as Christians have a really long track record 
of looking for sins that maybe most of us don't struggle with, sins that are public and visible, and then we point those out and say, that's the one, that's the really bad thing. We don't do any of that around here. That's the really bad stuff is for all those people outside. But then in our own lives, we foster jealousy and pride and division and all these, you know, quiet little vanilla soft serve sins that, you know, don't really hurt people, right? Let's point at what the heathen do instead and not focus on what we do. I think homosexuality is an example of this. Definitely a sin, but not something that the majority of people struggle with, so it's easy to put out there as the thing that's, you know, one of the real bad ones without having any self-reflection on what's going on in our own hearts. And that's not to say either that we shouldn't be willing to stand up and get canceled on Twitter for saying what we believe the Bible says, but we should do it in a loving and humble way that recognizes and doesn't conceal our own struggles and our own sins. But back to Sodom. Does it make sense to you that that would be the big thing? That God would look down on the world throughout history and choose these cities to destroy because of this sin when there were Greek and Roman cities that were absolutely rife with it? Our own cities? This is something that's celebrated? What separates us from Sodom? I would argue that when God steps in and shuts something down completely, like with the flood, like with the Tower of Babel, like with Sodom and Gomorrah, and also even with his destruction of Canaan through Israel, they were told to destroy everything that breathes. Not just in the surrounding lands, you know, kill all the men, the women and the children, you can take. But in Canaan, they were told to kill everything that breathes. And I think when he does that, he's stopping something that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. He's stopping something that represents a direct threat to his plan of salvation, which is a human way to look at it because he's omniscient and outside of time, so there are no real threats. But if we kind of look at it from a human perspective, he's responding, stopping something that is a significant threat. And he acts to end it completely. However... In his destruction, in his judgment, in his wrath, as we read in the previous chapter, if we read the previous chapter, we learn that Abraham has this interesting conversation with God. And the big takeaway from that is that God will not sweep away or destroy the righteous with the wicked. And that's a really important biblical principle that has a lot of far-reaching consequences. But when we look at the righteous, we've got to remember these are not like, you know, the super, super church people who have the biggest Bible and, um, you know, say the longest prayers or something. These are people who are saved, regardless of whether they are living in Sodom and doing, you know, have, have some issues for sure, as you'll read if you get into the, you know, R-rated section of uh, Genesis 19. Um, but as believers... While we won't experience the wrath of God, we will experience the consequences of living in a sinful, fallen world. We will experience, obviously, the consequences of our sin, but also discipline, consequences of sin that God allows or brings 
for discipline. We only have to look to uh, the book of Daniel, other books as well, but I feel like that one is the one that always comes to my mind. You look at Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. These are four young men who were clearly devoted to following God, who were taken captive out of the land of Judah, saw their families probably murdered, and then are essentially slaves in high-level positions for a long time, and then have some pretty big run-ins with the law. They suffered hardship. They suffered loss. They suffered the discipline of God. They did not suffer the wrath of God, not the destruction Now, since God won't destroy the righteous, the saved with the wicked, the unsaved, he chooses to evacuate all the saved people from the cities of the plain before he pours out his wrath. And this is how I think we start to get into the relevance of eternal security. Lot, his wife, the two daughters are brought out of the city by angels and told to flee to the mountains because God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. But... Not all of them make it. None of them make it to the mountains immediately, but not all of them make it to Zor. Lot's wife chose to look back and became a pillar of salt, or according to some, was buried in salt. There's disagreement on what exactly that means. So almost everything I've heard, and I assume if you're anything like me and you've had the same kind of diet generally of you know, scriptural teaching, probably similar to what you've heard, is that Lot's wife was out of Sodom. She's like, oh, I really miss, you know, my, my super cool house and all my, all my cows and stuff, and I just want to look back, and, and then God hits her. And the, the idea behind that being that, A, she was almost saved. She was like a threshold believer. She was right there, but she forgot to initial one line on the paperwork, and so God hit her with the salt. Or she was saved, but then she's like, I really like Sodom. I'm going to forfeit my salvation and go back. And if we breeze through, I think we could easily come to those conclusions. But when we slow down and try to add more information, I think those start to become more difficult positions to support. First of all, as with Adam and Eve, I would argue that the two angels pulled out only saved people from Sodom. The angels tell Lot to escape with his wife and his daughters, lest they be swept away. But when they hesitate, the angels grab their hands, bring them out, and then they still are going slow. They're still waiting. And in verse 22, if we look at that again, the angels say, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. If these aren't saved people... They could say, you better go, but in 15 seconds, we are going to do something. But they say, we can't do anything until you arrive there. We cannot unleash the judgment that God has planned for these cities until you are out of harm's way, because otherwise the righteous would be swept away with the wicked. Now, if Lot's wife or Lot's daughters or any of these people were not saved at this time, I think they would have been left in Sodom to be swept away. I don't think the angels would have dragged them out. I don't think they would have you know, said we can't do anything about it. I don't think this is just talking about Lot, who I don't think anyone should argue is unsaved based on some of the New Testament passages. But yeah, if, if, if Lot's wife or Lot's children weren't saved, his daughters, they don't need to be brought out. They can be destroyed if they want to stay in destruction. 
But then when we look back at Lot's wife, who gets hit by the salt, what do we have? What do we make of that? What's, what's going on with that? The typical idea, I think we all know, is again, that she looks back and God smites her. God judges her because of her lack of faith. But I don't think that fits with the information. First, as many, many people have pointed out, I don't think this is just like a quick look over her shoulder to see the fireworks. Because, I mean, if stuff was like blowing up behind me, I'd want to see that too, I think. This wasn't just a quick glance. And verse 26 already tells us that she's lagging behind. She's behind the group. She's in the back. And then the implication, I believe, is more that she turned back. She didn't just look back. She was turning back to return to Sodom. And that was when she became a pillar of salt or was buried in salt, depending on your interpretation. And this wouldn't seem to change much, potentially. In fact, it's often used to bolster the idea that Lot's wife was not saved or was forfeiting her salvation so that she could get back to Sodom. But I think we've got to ask some important questions. First of all, did Lot's wife believe that Sodom and the other cities of the plain were really going to be destroyed? Because if she didn't, I think we could try to support that argument, maybe. She's wanting to return to her old life. She thinks she can get back, have her comfort and everything. But if she really did believe they were going to be destroyed, then no matter how great her old life was, it wouldn't make sense for her to try to return there. I mean, there are other cities in the world, maybe not with the same comforts as Sodom, but she could have gone somewhere else. She doesn't have to go back there if she really thinks it's going to be destroyed. If somebody told me, and I don't have, you know, a life of amazing luxury for American standards, but it's not bad. And if somebody told me Anchorage is going to be hit by a nuclear missile, I wouldn't be like really just want to go back and, you know, sit in my house a little longer or something. I would be out of there if I really believed it. You don't do something like this. We have to look at these people as real people with real thoughts and, and the same kinds of thought processes as we do. So if she really thinks it's about to be destroyed, I don't think it makes sense that she would try to get back. I don't think she would have just hoped that, you know, the insurance would cover the paint damage and the windows that are broken out and she'd be able to move back into the city. Additionally, even if she didn't think Sodom was going to be destroyed, look at what the men of Sodom said they were going to do to Lot. They said, we're going to do worse to you than what we were planning for the two angels. She has everyone in the city essentially trying to break the door down to wipe her and her family out. I don't think that's just isolated to Lot. She's got a mob of people. And when it says the small and the great and the young and the old, I think that those things are significant. I don't think those are just small details. I think these are people who have ability to cause them serious harm. She can't get back to her old life. First off, again, the city's going to be destroyed. Second, if she was able to get back, if God said, no, nah, never mind, I'm kidding, well, I'll destroy it next year, she goes back into the city, she would have been torn to shreds by the people of the city. They were going to treat Lot, and I would argue his family, worse than them. So put yourself in her shoes. 
You know this city's going to be destroyed. In fact, it even says before she turns back that the fire and brimstone start raining down. If you put yourself in her shoes, you're out of the city. Angels are screaming at you to hurry, run. It's going to be destroyed. What would compel you to return? What would compel you to delay, to hesitate? I think if we kind of keep that in the back of our mind and look back again at Genesis 18, we might be able to get some clues. Because Abraham does this weird negotiation with God where he's like, oh, you don't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Would you destroy the cities if there were 50 righteous people in it? And then he goes down, 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 down to 10. And I think a lot of times we look at the 10 as some kind of arbitrary number. Abraham just likes round numbers. But why would he stop there? Why not go down to five? Why not go down to one? Would God destroy the city for the sake of the one? Does he have anyone in specific in mind when he works his way down to 10? Does he know that Lot and his family live there? Yes. When they were dividing the land among them, deciding which way each one was going to go, Abraham knew Lot went to Sodom and... He brought him back after the, uh, the um, five kings came and captured Lot and his family and the rest of Sodom. And if you knew the city where your family lived was going to be destroyed, that would be the top of your mind. So I think he had a specific number in mind. I think he had a specific number of people. If we count up everyone mentioned in Lot's family, we've got Lot, his wife, his two daughters, and the two sons-in-law to be. They're not married yet. So these are two young girls who live in his house, probably up to early teens because marriage was very early in those days compared to what we see now. So we don't add up to 10. I'm homeschooled. I can add and subtract, but it's a little sketchy. So it leaves some number of people And then if we look again at verse 12, chapter 19, verse 12, the two angels say, whom else do you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. Are they just kind of guessing? Do you have any sons? How many kids do you have? These are angels sent by God. I don't think that that is a throwaway line. I think Lot has two daughters for sure, but I would argue that he also has sons and probably sons' wives, maybe grandchildren. I think they weren't his only children in the city. Because they weren't married yet, they were living with him under his roof. But we don't have any mention of Lot being able to warn anyone but the sons-in-law. And so I think now we see why Lot is hesitating, why he's delaying, why he wouldn't just rush out of there as soon as possible when the whole city is clamoring around his house trying to break in to kill him. He was trying to rescue all of his children, I believe. And I think that shows us why Lot's wife was lagging behind, why she was turning back. She wasn't trying to get back to her old life. Her old life was gone. It wasn't coming back, and she knew it. I think she was doing what every single mother in the room would do if your house was burning down. Nothing in your house would compel you to go back in except your children. 
And so I think that's what was going on. But she wasn't able to get back. The city was destroyed, which tells us something about the spiritual state of those hypothetical children. They were wicked. The God, our God doesn't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. But then the reason she didn't make it back is interesting. She's buried or become salt. And the Bible has a lot to say about salt. And if you just kind of like do a quick survey in your mind, are those mostly good things or bad things, would you say? Good things. Elisha, one of the first things he does after taking the mantle of Elijah and becoming this incredible prophet, he goes to Jericho and there's a spring that's polluted. It causes death, causes unfruitfulness. What does he do to purify that spring? Salt. If you look in the law, the sacrifices, as Israel is described to be do, or to do, as they're commanded to do, so many of them include salt. Salt must be included with these. And the sacrifices themselves are a type of Christ's sacrifice. God makes covenants that he calls covenants of salt, and what does Jesus say about salt in the New Testament? Among other things, he says, categorically, salt is good. So we have all these pictures, all these examples of salt being a positive thing, and then we see Lot's wife and say, that was God's judgment. He wiped her out because she was going back to her old life. But I think if she truly was one of the wicked of Sodom and she was destroyed that he would have let her return, let her return to the destruction. She would have been swept away with the rest of the wicked. But instead, I would argue she was preserved. Let's take a look at Luke 17. Luke 17, verses 31 through 33, talk about Lot and Lot's wife as well. Jesus says, On that day... The one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, most would say Lot's wife is an example of the negative here. She was going back for the goods but if you look at the next verse, verse 33, it says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Did Lot's wife, with fire and brimstone raining down behind her on Sodom, with the whole town wanting to kill her family, did she try to preserve her life? Did she try to keep her life? I would argue no. I would say she was willing to lose her life and was then preserved. Okay. Last, real quick, historical example, um, more of a broad view of things, but is that, that kind of relates, in my view, to eternal security, is the people of Israel as a whole. Instead of centering on individuals, we're looking at a broad nation here, but God makes a covenant with Israel. They are typologically a picture of his people and in a sense, literally his people. And we see very often in Scripture God correcting them, God disciplining them. Sometimes, like we talked about with Daniel, very, very harshly, incredibly horrific stuff was happening there. But is Israel ever destroyed? Does God ever destroy Israel? I don't think he does. 
does God ever replace Israel? That'll be a, a discussion. I don't... I would say no. I know there are different ideas. But throughout Israel, we see him disciplining, disciplining, punishing to teach them, but not to destroy them like he did with the Canaanites, with Sodom, with the flood. Even though I would say there are times where Israel, as clearly as you possibly can, rejected him. And that's not to say that those individuals, each individual person of Jewish heritage is saved. I don't think that God negates their free will and forces them to be saved. But I think as a picture, as a nation, they represent that there's nothing we can do to remove ourselves from the grace of God when we are his. And lastly, we're almost done, so we can get out to this sunshine. Uh, We'll take a little quick look at a few other things among God's character and some of the wording in Scripture that I think kind of support this. So Luke 16, 26, we don't have to read it, but Lazarus and the rich man, they're in the afterlife. Lazarus in paradise, the rich man in Hades, and the rich man asks for Lazarus to come over, dip his finger in water, all that nonsense. Abraham says there's a great chasm fixed. No one can go from us to you or vice versa. So I think when we look at that, as, you know, obviously you can't go from condemnation when you're after, after death to salvation, but I think it works the other way around as well. John 10, 28, we are pictured as sheep throughout the Bible, and if we are God's sheep, the responsibility isn't on the sheep to keep themselves safe. That's Christ's responsibility. Revelation God casts death itself into the lake of fire, and he says there will be no more death in the new Jerusalem. I think if there was the possibility to reject God after salvation, that wouldn't be an accurate statement. And just the very fact that it's called eternal life, I think, is revelatory. The terminology is important. He says it's eternal life. And if we look at God as the outside of time, infinite God, and he sees my life from its initiation through into eternity, and at some point in the New Jerusalem, I decide I do not want this salvation. I don't think he would call that eternal life. I don't think that outside of time would call something like that eternal life if it's just a temporary break between my rebellion and my second rebellion. Now to clarify, I don't think that God suspends our free will or removes it after we are saved, or after people go into condemnation. I don't think that fits with his character either. I think the issue is if someone is truly saved, they will not choose to reject him because of the system he has put in place, because of who he is, and because of what it means to accept him. I don't think that it's possible in the sense that God's not like, oh, you're in, you're in, and you can't, you're now just a robot that has to do what I say, but that we will not choose to do that similarly to my view on condemnation. I don't think that when someone's condemned, when someone dies physically in sin, that they're, like, they've passed the arbitrary cutoff and God's like, nope, I don't like you anymore. Burn forever. I think that if there were people in the lake of fire who could genuinely repent, who would genuinely repent, I don't think God would be like, sorry, you missed the boat. I think the issue more is that people will not they have made their choice, 
and no matter how long they suffer in the lake of fire, they will not repent. They choose to be the master of their own fate in their mind. They choose to be in the lake of fire. I don't think God would look on someone who had true repentance after condemnation and not respond with forgiveness. It's more a matter of that won't happen. Okay, so. Where does I believe Lot's wife was saved, attempted to return to Sodom for her children, and rather than being swept away in the destruction, I believe she was prevented from returning and being swept away. But I don't think that's so much like a free will thing, like God altered her will, but he wouldn't allow destruction to fall upon someone who's saved because she wasn't rejecting her salvation. She was trying to save her children. If that makes any sense. Well, let's talk more about it afterwards. I hope that this, regardless of what you... Uh, what your views are, that this was at least interesting and maybe some stuff that hasn't been beaten to death over and over again, like, again, Romans 8 and Hebrews 6. But, yeah, I would love to have more conversations. Yeah. Is the outcome that lost wife experienced, physical death, the same outcome that those in Sodom and Gomorrah experienced, physical death? I think there's a difference between physical death, you know, typologically being swept away in the fire and brimstone and being what I would argue is preserved in salt. Um, Yes, she experienced physical death, um, but I don't think, right, which, but I think the manner is important. I think because, because what God is teaching through it, you know, he could have buried the whole plain and salt, but he didn't. He chose to destroy with fire. Right. And so, and, and I feel like that is an important detail. Um, personally. Okay.